RX. Today on Studio 360, we would promote gigs and put Malcolm X on the cover of flyers, and some cat would roll up to us and say, Yo, who's this Malcolm the 10th? How politics shaped public enemy, and public enemy shaped politics. That's when we say it's important to see if we can use the music as it reaches people and just fill it with something that means something. Plus, how Maya Angelou turned memories of the brutal racism of her childhood into a gorgeous, important book. She identified with that caged bird with this tremendous impulse to fly, to be free of that cage. An American Icons feature about I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. That's ahead on Studio 360, right after this. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. In the 1970s, Carlton Douglas Reidenhauer was a teenager in Queens, New York, and went to his first hip-hop shop. The music hadn't started, and he didn't know quite what to make of the equipment he saw on stage. And as he told an interviewer in 2001... I was totally confused. I was like, why do they need two turntables? Uh, in case the one over there breaks down. This person is very prepared. He figured it out, had his aha moment, and in short order became a rap superstar himself. Reidenhauer is much better known by his stage name, Chuck D. And Chuck D is, of course, the leader of the group Public Enemy. In 1988, Public Enemy released It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. That album was aggressively political and generally considered among the most important of the modern age. Our story of that Public Enemy album begins with a longtime fan of the band. I absolutely remember the first time I heard Public Enemy. All you fuckers, liars, and My name is Tracy McGregor. I am a former editor and vice president of The Source magazine. I was one of those that, you know, I still have my cassette copy of Yo Bum Rush the Show. We was bum rushing in on the industry, so to speak. I'm Hank Shockley, creator of Public Enemy and creator of The Bomb Squad. That record was, to me, was the prelude of what was to come, which was It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. That first album dropped, and Public Enemy wasn't getting the props that they deserved, you know, from the media. They weren't getting radio play. Folks were criminalizing Chuck D based on the imagery and, you know, the things that he was saying, even though it wasn't criminal, you know. I think they underestimated. I don't think they recognized that this was an educated black man that was really able to contextualize what was going on. And so when they came back, he came back harder and more focused and more politicized. Yo, Chuck, these honey dribbles are still firm on us. Show them that we can do this, because we always do this. <laughs> yeah, boy. 
can you go? Death Row? What a brother know. Once again, back is the incredible. Rhyme animal, the uncannable thief. Public enemy number one. Five votes and freeze. And I got numb. Right now, all around us, and so compelling you never miss the fact there's no melody, is a music that is all beat, strong beat, and talk. It's rap music. First of all, they never really considered rap music music. And then they said, well, it's a kid's music. I remember when George Harrison once called rap music computerized rot. If it was a Lennon or McCartney, I would have felt dissed, but. <laughs> had to do something fast, we had to do it now, and we had to do it cheap. So we decided to just make records from the records that I already have. Our sole intent was to destroy music. Sonically, we set out to do that to redefine what people thought of as music. And since we didn't have a bass, a guitar, and things of that nature, we had to figure out how to use samples in a most creative way. I have 10,000 records, so it's a very tedious an incredibly arduous task to just go through and listen to every little hit, little squeal, vocal snippet. That freedom is a road seldom traveled by the multitude. Every little possible thing that we can possibly use in order to create this record. Some of the sampling is you want people to know that it's a sample, and then the other parts of the process is that you don't want them to know. There's many ways of dirtying up a sample. The first thing that we did was what is known today as bit crushing. And we would use the Akai S900. And that machine had the ability to not only play at 12 bits, but you can also reduce those 12 bits down to 8, to 4, to 2, for example. You get a graininess that happens with the sample. And it becomes less distinct, but it takes on a new characteristic. There was many different techniques that was used. We would take a very small snippet of something and loop it bit, 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 bit. We would take filtering. We would truncate sounds so that it become unrecognizable if you played it in such a short burst. These are techniques that we had to develop. We found ways of using the technology, meaning the drum machines, to create the sounds that we wanted to do. The rules of sampling in the time when we was creating the PE records were there were none. This was new territory that nobody kind of like had any kind of understanding of what the legal ramifications was. So we kind of like went underneath the radar. That's the reason why we decided to use so many of them is so that we want to get the feeling and the understanding of, wow, you can use 
all of your records and not just one or two. What y'all think y'all doing bringing us the call for this guy and saying we steal and beat? Y'all can't copyright no beats, man. Your judges ain't crazy, man. Yeah, Come on, we gotcha. Now there really is no set limit on how much you can charge for a sample. So if you look back on what we were doing, if everyone had that frame of mind, the cost of their records that we were doing would be so astronomical that it wouldn't be worth doing it in the first place. The album is powerful. It is militant. It is unapologetically black. We would promote gigs and put Malcolm X on the cover of flyers and some cat would roll up to us and say, yo, who's this Malcolm the 10th? That's when we said it's important to see if we can use the music as it reaches people and just fill it with something that means something. Freedom is a road seldom traveled by the multitude. Unless you had parents who were in the movement, you didn't know who Asada Shakur was. You didn't know who Malcolm X was. You knew who Martin Luther King was, but you didn't know about these other folks. Public Enemy raised our awareness, you know, to where, okay, we start doing our research, we're connecting the dots and realizing, you know what, we had revolutionaries who weren't standing for this. Study our music, you get our history by default. The samples had to have a deeper meaning. We wanted to feel like it was a revolution. Too black. Too strong. So in order for that to be possible, the sounds that we had to choose had to resonate that vibration. It's not just about the textures or the timbre. It's also about the emotional content. Have you forgotten that once we were brought here, we were robbed of our name, robbed of our language. We lost our religion, our culture, our God. And many of us, by the way we act, we even lost our minds. You can trigger minds into not being so much asleep by using art, using song to make them think progressively against what's wrong or what's ignored. In the never-ending search for the bases, we've come to a new hiding place. Yeah, that's right, Wall Street. Check out the justice and how they run it, smelling, smelling, sniffing, ripping, and brothers trying to get swifting. He called out the drug dealers. He called out the users. And then he gave us the visual. Chuck D, you're checking out your MTV rap. This is Lucy's house, and I'm going to show you what happens to families when one of the members becomes a basehead. I see it on their faces. First come, first serve faces. Standing on line, checking the time. Whole boys playing the curve. The same ones they used to do early. Yeah. Now they're gone. People they're like gone. to turn a blind eye to the ugliness that happens out here, and he shined a light on it. Uh, it's my obligation and duty to use the medium that reaches out to the people to bring a certain point or issue that's tucked to the back 
up for discussion. And that's what we did. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it and said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn. I said never. Here's a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. I wasn't with it, but just that very minute it occurred to me. The suckers had authority. People weren't talking about this type of stuff on this level. You know, remember, we're post-civil rights generation. Chuck D. reinvigorated the movement. See, we were languishing. Things still weren't right in our community, but we had no voice. We weren't organized. Chuck D. single-handedly raised our consciousness and made us aware that the things that we were seeing and feeling were real. The FBI was tapping my telephone. I never live alone. I never walk alone. My posse's always ready and they're waiting in my zone. Although I live the life that of a resident, but I've been knowing the scheme that of the president. Tapping my phone. Who's screws abuse? I stand accused of doing harm. America, based on the counterintelligence program, has something to do with the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. We know the FBI's relationship with the black community. COINTELPRO. Chuck D knew that. CIA, FBI, all intelligence lies. When I say it, they get alarmed because I'm louder than a bomb. Folks weren't ready for that. <laughs> Folks think they're woke now. Like Chuck D was woke AF back then, 30 years ago, and woke up an entire nation. To those that disagree, it causes static for the original Asiatic man. That story was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio. All of those Chuck D clips are from a 2001 interview for the public television show Speaking Freely. Coming up... How I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings still resonates. I identified with her as a young black girl, the young black girl who is still alive and inside me, who experienced terrible things that I don't want to talk about. The first and indelible book by Maya Angelou. She became a champion for me. That's next on Studio 360. Given how ubiquitous memoirs are today, people now get master's degrees in memoir writing. It's a little hard to fathom that as the 1960s were ending, an autobiography by a living African-American woman was rare, verging on non-existent. But that changed in 1969. That is when Maya Angelou, age 40, kind of a late bloomer as an author, published her first book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. It was her first of seven autobiographies, and it became the first nonfiction book ever by a black woman to become a bestseller. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings is a coming-of-age story about the racism, sexual abuse, and other outrages Angelo encountered. It's acclaimed, beloved, and also a regular subject of bans by school libraries. For this installment of our American Icon series, producer Sonia Green looks at how Angelo's first book came to be, and why it became so important to so many people. Thanks to the book that launched her writing career, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, 
Maya Angelou is remembered as a writer of the highest order, but she lived nearly half her life before she wrote that book and had done just about everything to pay the bills. Here's the abbreviated version. At age 16, she was pregnant with her only son, Clyde Guy Johnson. To support him, she took on many jobs. She lied about her age to get a job as San Francisco's first black female streetcar conductor. Later, she worked as a prostitute and ran a brothel. Then in the 1950s, she's singing at a club in San Francisco when she meets some cast members in the award-winning opera by Gershwin, Porgy and Bess. They ask if she can dance. She says yes. She's offered a role and goes on a 22-nation tour around the world with the company. Back in the States in 1957, she records her album, Miss Calypso. These Yankee girls are giving me a big scare. Black the roots, blonde the hair. The eyelash falls, face is paint. Pants is where those girls they ain't. We Calypso girls, good a lot. What you see is what we got. She also ends up writing for television, is a journalist, a playwright, and a poet. She becomes friends with writers like Rosa Guy and James Baldwin. Mr. Chairman. She attends a speech of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s in Harlem. ...organized politically and spiritually around the concept of the inequality of man... She ends up befriending Dr. King. ...dignity of human personality. And then, on her 40th birthday... Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. She's devastated. It just, just knocked me out. That's Angela from the 2016 documentary And Still I Rise. Her grief makes her relapse into a condition from her childhood, voluntary mutism. And I fell into mutism again. I just, just couldn't bring myself. Then her friend Baldwin steps in. And finally, after about five days, James Baldwin came to my house. Bama, lama, lama on the door. Open this door. I'll call the police. So I opened the door, and he came, and he saw I was really unkempt. And my house was a mess, and I've always loved a pretty house. And he said, go take a shower. Put some clothes on. I'm taking you somewhere. He took her to a dinner party at the home of cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer and his then-wife, Judy. And Baldwin asked me, tell a little bit about your grandma. Tell a little bit about Stamps, Arkansas. So I started by saying, in Arkansas, racism was so prevalent that black people couldn't even eat vanilla ice cream. <laughs> and so it made everybody laugh. And they asked me to tell a story, tell another. The next day, Judy Pfeiffer calls her friend and editor at Random House, Robert Loomis. And she tells Loomis that Angelo is a gripping storyteller. Many years later, in a 1986 interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, Angelo recalls that conversation she had with Loomis. He phoned me a number of times and I said, no, Robert Loomis. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not interested. Until he said to me, well, Miss Angelo, I guess it's just as well that you don't attempt this book because to write autobiography as literature is almost impossible. So I thought, oh, <laughs> well, in that case, I'd better try. And try she did. 
In Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where she lived, she would rent a room at the Brookstown Inn Hotel. Her only niece and archivist, Rosa Johnson, took me there. We are at the historic Brookstown Inn. It's a hotel here in Winston-Salem where Dr. Angelo would come to do her writings. And here we are. Johnson says her aunt would rent a room for the entire time she was writing. She was an early riser. So she'd probably be down here like at 6 o'clock in the morning, maybe till the afternoon, and come home and have lunch. She had a ritual. And when she'd check in here, she would have the staff take any paintings or drawings off the walls. Because she would have her thesaurus, her Bible, a bottle of sherry, and a yellow pad. So with her Bible, her thesaurus, her bottle of sherry, and yellow pad, Angelo found her mind settling on her earliest memories. When I was three and barely four, we had arrived in the musty little town, wearing tags on our wrists, which instructed, to whom it may concern, that we were Marguerite and Bailey Johnson, Jr., from Long Beach, California, en route to Stamps, Arkansas, in care of Mrs. Annie Henderson. This is where life begins for Maya Angelou, born Marguerite Johnson. For the first several years of her life, she, along with her brother Bailey, are raised by her grandmother. That's Mrs. Annie Henderson and Uncle Willie. Mrs. Henderson owns the only store in the black section of town. Joanne Gabin runs the Furious Flower Poetry Center at James Madison University. She also teaches Angelo's work in her English class. And so when she takes us to Stamps, Arkansas, we can see the fear that Uncle uh, Willie has to go through, uh, has to hide in a, in a vegetable bin to avoid the Ku Klux Klan. From the side of the store, Bailey and I heard him say to Mama, Annie, tell Willie he better lay low tonight. A crazy nigger messed with a white lady today. Some of the boys will be coming over here later. Even after the slow drag of years, I remember the sense of fear which filled my mouth with hot, dry air and made my body light. She knew early on that because of racism, black people were hated. She briefly leaves her life in stamps when her father shows up and takes her and Bailey to live with their mother in St. Louis. Marguerite was almost eight years old, and it is here that she's raped by her mother's boyfriend. The man is arrested, put on trial, and found guilty. And the day after the trial, he was killed, possibly by her uncles. This is the first time Angelo goes mute. Just my breath, carrying my words out, might poison people, and they'd curl up and die like the black, fat slugs that only pretended. I had to stop talking. After five years of not speaking, reading is what eventually helped the writer speak again. Among the authors she read was Paul Lawrence Dunbar. His poem Sympathy would inspire the title for I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings that she would write decades later. I would like to read the Dunbar poem, if I may. Professor Emeritus from the College of William and Mary, Joanne Braxton. I know what the caged bird feels, alas, when the sun is bright on the upland slopes. Braxton wrote about Angela's autobiography and black women writing autobiography, a tradition within a tradition. She identified with that caged bird with this tremendous impulse to fly, to be free 
of that cage. And while there were many ways in which she could not escape the immediate oppressions of her environment, she could test them through imaginary flights of literature. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings was released in 1969. Prior to 1970, sexism played a role in who was allowed to tell the story of being Black in America. Selwyn Kajo, professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. If you look at all the major biographies, be it Frederick Douglass, be it uh, Washington, women voices are silent. So you don't hear the women. They were just their wives or their helpmates, but they're, they're never painted or printed or published or articulated. Furious Flower Executive Director Joanne Gabin. There were very few autobiographical pieces that I knew of by Black women. And so my Angela's was among the first. The power of Angela's story is that she is a Black woman. But the early Black woman tradition really comes into being in the 1970s. Now, significantly enough, in 1970, a number of works come out that sort of gave us a sense of women voices. For example, you have Toni Morrison's The Blue's Eye, 1970. You have Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. We have Lewis Merriwood's, uh in terms of Daddy Was a Numbers Runner, 1970. You have Alice Walker, The Third Life of Grange, uh, Grange Copeland. And of course, it ended, of course, in that very same year with Michelle Wallace's very powerful work, um, Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman. Angelo's book demonstrates all the forces that black women still grapple with and what some call intersectionality today. Kimberly Crenshaw formed the theory to describe how our overlapping social identities relate to structures of racism and oppression. She's already talking about intersectionality. We just didn't have the terminology that Kimberly Crenshaw most brilliantly brought forth after the fact. But she had illustrated intersectionality without calling it that. She called it a tripartite crossfire. The black female is assaulted in her tender years by all those common forces of nature at the same time that she is caught in the tripartite crossfire of masculine prejudice, white illogical hate, and black lack of power. Which, if you think about it, is a little bit more charged than intersectionality which sounds more neutral by comparison. You cannot talk about Angela without talking about her influence or relationship to other black women writers. You could not have a color purple without a cage bird sings. It opens up a space. The Color Purple by Alice Walker came in 1982, 13 years after I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Angela's book shows her struggles with race and class. As a teenager, she works as a maid alongside Miss Glory, their employer, Mrs. Cullen, in one day decides to call Angela, who was Margaret to her, Mary, because a friend said her name was too long. Marguerite was furious. Reverend Serena's Churn, the senior pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Angela was a member for decades. If you visited Dr. Angelo in her home, surely she had, you know, the, the home staff. But she she treated them with the utmost respect and respected you two 
when she would introduce them, this is Mr. So-and-so, this is Miss so, Mrs. So-and-so. It wasn't, you know, you know, J.D., whatever. No, no. She would insist that whoever came across her door and respect everybody in that house. Yes, it's my housekeeper, but that's Miss Thomas. That's not married to you. And I've seen times when she had people to leave because they didn't give the due respect to the women in the household. Angelo did not take matters of respect lightly. Not long ago, a tweet resurfaced a 90s video of a teenage girl addressing the author. I wanted to ask Maya her views on interracial relationships. Oh, thank you. And first, I'm Miss Angelo. Miss Angelo. Yes, ma'am. I'm not Maya. I'm 62 years old. <laughs> I have lived so long and tried so hard that a young woman like you or any other has no, you have no license to come up to me and call me by my first name. For some, the debate was not about what she said, rather... I am never here for any black person scolding another black person around white folks. I am never here for that. That's from King of Reads on YouTube. I'm tired of respectability politics. I am tired of this notion that just because someone has status, class, I have to address them as because. For others, it was more a matter of respect, something Braxton says Angela tried to achieve through her writing. So in the tradition of the slave foremothers and the women missionaries and uh, ministers who wrote autobiographies before her, she is negotiating for respect. Not merely for herself, for herself, yes, but also for others like her that they might be recognized both as fully human and also as representing a spark of the divine. You also cannot talk about Angelo in only literary terms. If you just see the, the great actress that she was, uh, the great dancer that she was, the great uh, musician that she was. You miss her if you don't realize that this is a woman of tremendous faith and tremendous dependence on God. I visited Reverend Churn in his office one Sunday after his church service. She came to see me one day. Well, it was summer. We had our summer camp. And I, I knew her car had arrived. I, and she never showed. I finally went downstairs, found her, surrounded by kids, rapping. You know, Dr. Angelo could, uh, you know, people tried to, Dr. Angelo could rap. She had those kids enthralled. The album she recorded way back before her writing career in 1957 is one of the many reasons Angelo is sometimes dubbed the godmother of hip-hop. She was speaking the times, the struggle, to a beat on Miss Calypso in 1957. Just drums and her voice on beat. I don't know anyone who came before her, at least within the recorded era of music. That is music producer Sean Rivera. I'm sure that our ancestors uh, kept history by putting words in stories to music because we couldn't write it down. But as far as what we know as hip-hop today, Maya Angelou was the pioneer. Rivera discovered Angela's book in 2007. It was life-changing and inspired Cagebird Songs, an album he worked with Angelo on for seven years. 
It was released in November 2014, six months after her death. The songs are from her poems, some of which are based on experiences from the book. She talks about, uh, you know, uh, there's a long-legged girl in San Francisco by the Golden Gate. Uh, she said she'd give me all I wanted, but I just couldn't wait, right? And it made me laugh because for someone who seemed to be so presidential and prim and proper, uh, I didn't realize how she came from the same kind of streets I was raised in, and then some before they were what they are. She became this, uh, I could connect with her through the book uh, in a way that uh, the poetry uh, only alluded to. There's a long-legged girl in San Francisco by the Golden Gate. She said she'd give me all I want, but I just couldn't wait. I started to picking them up and laying them down. Picking them up and laying them down. Picking them up and laying them down. Getting to the next town, baby. To picking them up, laying them down. Picking them up, laying them down. Picking them up and laying them down. The album has a cult-like following. People are still discovering it, and that's one of those things when you, when you're as timeless as Dr. Angelo. There's no rush. When you, I found her book almost 40 years after it was written, and it still changed the trajectory of my life to this day. So 40 years from now, you know, my great grandkids uh, will be just as inspired by it. You've heard of Band Book Week. It started with one book. I know why the caged bird sings. There was uh, a challenge to her book in 1982 that came to the attention of uh, a small group of publishers, booksellers, and librarians um, that were working on um, uh, a display for what's turned into BookCon today. Deborah Caldwell Stone is the director of the Office for Intellectual Freedom at the American Library Association. It was the idea that her book was being banned, uh, a na- you know, a nominee from multiple awards, uh, an actual award-winning book, uh, a great work of literature is being removed from the schools based on the objections to the, you know, uh, use of language and sexual situations that were challenging but relevant and important to the book that really uh, spurred uh, these individuals to bring a focus to book censorship. In 1990, years after the office was inspired to work on banned books, they started keeping a yearly list of the top books banned. I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings has made the list hundreds of times. What's cited most often in the listed challenges is uh, profanity, um, explicit sexual activity, uh, or the description of explicit sexual activity, um, uh, and uh, sometimes uh, very vague references to the book not representing, quote, traditional values, unquote. Caldwell Stone says there will always be challenges to I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings because it itself is a challenge to the status quo. It, it forces individuals to confront their preconceptions of culture, of race, um, of class, um, and people find that profoundly disorienting and uncomfortable. And I think as long as literature is does that, and in fact, isn't that the task of literature to challenge us, to cause us to question ourselves and our beliefs? Joanne Gavin. Maya Angelou was right on target when she said this has to be not only recognized, but young people have to read about this. Not only did she give us that scene 
uh, in terms of the rape, but she also talked about the very hard issues of, of racism, of, of racial violence. And so she tells us these stories that are sometimes hard to hear, but must be heard. Earlier in her life, Angelo struggled to find her voice, sometimes literally, when she did not speak. In finding it and writing about it, she helped others find theirs. This book was the closest thing for me to feeling understood by someone who had walked a path um, and emerged successfully from a childhood of abuse. I identified with her as a young Black girl, the young Black girl who is still alive and inside me, who experienced terrible things that I don't want to talk about. She became a champion for me. For me, too. During my interview with Braxton, she asked me why I wanted to produce this story in particular. I did not encounter it until college, and it changed, it changed, my, it changed my life in, in, in ways that I didn't, I didn't even know how to articulate. So, yeah, I get emotional. Good. <laughs> Talking to Braxton took me back to reading the book as a college student in the 90s. I saw myself for the first time in the words. My story of rape at a young age, racism and identity was not unique, but it was also not normal. And I felt validation. Angelo's niece. There's family uh, dynamics that we as a people don't often talk about, like mental health issues, or incest and rape that goes on in the family. Um, and so by auntie, writing about those things, it opened the door for us to realize and acknowledge our pain. This is perhaps the greatest lasting impact of the book. Joanne Braxton. I think it's critically important to recognize that her text offers itself as a counter-narrative to the American historical narrative that remains his story by bringing her black and female voice forward to say in the words of Langston Hughes, I too sing America. The fact that the adult American Negro female emerges a formidable character is often met with amazement, distaste, and even belligerence. It is seldom accepted as an inevitable outcome of the struggle won by survivors and deserves respect, if not enthusiastic acceptance. I'm the best that ever done it. That's my title and I won it. Pow, I ain't lying, I'm the best. Sonia Green produced our story. She is based in Macon, Georgia, where she's a reporter at Mercer University's Center for Collaborative Journalism. Pedro Rafael Rosado was the engineer. Maya Angelou died in 2014 at age 86. All of Studio 360's American icons are made possible by grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And you can find dozens more American icon stories and hour-long documentaries at studio360.org. Coming up, the young novelist Angie Thomas 
at a very low point in her life. And for some reason, I thought that the best way to help my mom was if she didn't have to take care of me. How a certain 90s pop song saved a life. Next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Fifteen years ago, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, the L in the group TLC, died at age 30. As part of TLC, Lopez made memorable songs like this. And this. And this. One TLC superfan was a girl in Jackson, Mississippi named Angie Thomas. I had these two friends in middle school, and the three of us pretended we were TLC all the time. So I was always left eye, and they were T-Boz and Chili, and we would practice TLC songs in my driveway. We would um, play the songs maybe on a little Walkman, even though it had headphones. You could try to turn the volume all the way up so you could still hear it. And we would try to do the songs and the raps and everything and do our own little dances that they would do in the videos. But on the last day of sixth grade, my school decided to announce the students with the highest GPA. And I was a sixth grader, but I had the highest GPA in the entire school, more so than the seventh and eighth graders. And the teachers made the seventh graders feel kind of bad that a sixth grader had a higher GPA than them. So I guess they remembered that over the summer <laughs> because on my first day of seventh grade, the eighth graders just harassed me. I couldn't go down the hall without one of them pushing me or making a comment about me. They were calling me fatty. Um, they would push me. They would try to trip me, all kind of stuff. I remember looking for those friends that I just had in sixth grade that I was, you know, imitating TLC with, and they were silent. And I get it now because when you're that age, your first instinct is to protect yourself and not stick up for your friend. But I wished that they would stick up for me and they didn't. So I remember going home and just, I was done. I was done. My mom, I love my mom to death. And she did so much for me and for my grandmother. Um, she took care of my grandmother full time as a caregiver because my grandmother ended up having dementia. And then us struggling financially, not having a car, you know, having to ask neighbors to take us to the grocery store and stuff like that. It was hard. And for some reason, I thought that the best way to help my mom was if she didn't have to take care of me. I thought that that was the best thing um, if I just got out of the way. I had a moment where I just decided I was going to do it and I locked myself in the bathroom and I was going to take some pain medicine. I, for some reason, took my little walk, my little CD player into the restroom with me and I just sat on the floor and I cried. And my mom was 
outside of the bathroom telling me, just come out, please, don't you know? She's trying to talk me down. She didn't know that I was trying to take pills or anything like that. But she was trying to just get me to come out to talk to her. And I wanted to drown her out. So I put my headphones on and I pushed play on the CD player and Waterfalls came on. In that moment, I decided to really listen to the song. As much as I enjoyed the song, I decided to really listen to it and really listen to Lisa's rap. She ended the rap with saying, dreams are hopeless aspirations and hopes are coming true. Believe in yourself, the rest is up to me and you. And I remember listening to those lyrics and it spoke to me in such a way that I decided no, I'm not going to take these pills. I'm going to get up and I'm going to fight. I'm going to keep going because there's a rainbow on the other side of this. I turned the CD off and I took my headphones off and I went out of the bathroom and I apologized to my mom because I knew I scared her. And I told her, I was like, this song, I told her about the song. I said, this song just really changed me just now. Well, I started listening to him myself. My name is Julia Williams-Thomas, and I'm Angie's mom. I thought about what Angie was going, had been going through, and I thought, oh, if I could just get Lisa to talk to Angie, maybe, maybe that would cheer her up. I called recording studios, record label companies, I called everybody and anybody I could think of to try. And I had some other co-workers and other parents say, girl, you crazy. I wouldn't be trying to call that woman. Uh, well, you can stay in your mode, baby, and I do crazy things, whatever it takes. And so I found the name of her studio that she had, had at that time, not realizing that was located at her house. So when I called, <laughs> there was this young lady on the phone answered, and I told her who I was and that my daughter was crazy about Lisa and how Lisa had really made an impact on my child's life. And I was like, if she could just say hello. And the next voice I heard was Lisa Left Eye Lopez. I was in another room. And my mom was talking to Left Eye from TLC on the phone and explaining to her everything. And my mom comes in the room where I am. I was watching television. My mom muted the television. She said, someone wants to speak to you. So I took the phone and I say hello. And she goes, hey, this is Left Eye. I dropped the phone. <laughs> I dropped the phone. And so when I got on the phone, she said, are you okay? <laughs> And I said, yes, ma'am. And then she was like, oh, you said ma'am. <laughs> I don't think she was used to kids saying ma'am to her. So I'm Southern. I couldn't help it. And we were just talking and she, she kind of eased into it. You know, it wasn't a thing of from jump, let me 
talk her off the ledge. You know, it was like, let me ease my way into it. So she told me, you know, your mom told me you've been going through some stuff. And she was like, I'm sorry that you, you know, feel like you have to end it, but don't. And she said, you know, you have so much to fight for. You got your mom, you got your grandmother, you've got so many things that you can do in your life one day. She said, don't take your life. She was a simple with it, you know, don't do it. And I used to wish that my life would end. You know, my mom would look at me and say, oh, I'm so, I'm so sad to hear you say that. And if you don't know what it feels like to be happy, you don't know what you don't know, you know? So it's, it's like there's no hope, but it um, doesn't really have to be that way, so. She said, I'm talking from experience, and it may seem like it's hard right now, but I promise it will get better. I remember just, I was, I was just more so stunned that it was left eye talking to me, but still it's, it hit me and I was like, yes, ma'am, you know. <laughs> Lisa said some things to her that really encouraged her in a way like I could never have done myself. At least I felt like I couldn't have, but it made a difference. It made an impact and it stirred my daughter and encouraged her in a way, honey, that it's like whatever I'm going through this and I'm coming out of this. TLC was the biggest girl group ever. At that time, they were like humongous. So the fact that my mom was able to find the number, the fact that we were able to get her on the phone, it showed me, okay, anything can happen. If that can happen, anything can happen for sure. Angie Thomas's young adult novel, On the Come Up, was published in 2019. Her 2017 debut novel, The Hate You Give, was adapted as a film. And that is it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI in association with Slate. Our production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalve, Evan Chung, Zoe Saunders, Sam Kim, Morgan Flannery, Tommy Bazarian, and I'm Kurt Anderson. People like to turn a blind eye to the ugliness that happens out here, and he shined a light on it. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Oh, what's the news matter anyway? It's our last day together. We say goodbye. It's usually sort of a, a world change. You know, someone's hired, someone's fired, somebody's moving, someone gets a new job. The end of an era finale, right? The, the... Yes, exactly. It's like this time together is ending. Next time, for the last time, on Studio 360.